What a beautiful song with a beautiful message. And how often we need to be reminded of that. Because sometimes when you're um, sitting down with your checkbook or sitting at your computer, paying the bills, taking care of business, thinking through your schedule, it's, it's easy to um, love Jesus from a distance and to remember that um, he's the reason that we gather. He's the reason that we're here. He's the reason that we have hope. And our greatest hopes and dreams and aspirations come through knowing Him. Well, this morning, as we begin a new sermon series, things are going to be a little bit different uh, because uh, we're going to talk about four important topics related to Jesus' death and what they actually accomplished. Uh, People ask the question, maybe not church people, but people in the world go, what was the big deal with Jesus' death and resurrection? And we sometimes don't do a good job explaining that to a culture that doesn't understand the things that we do. And today, as we talk about the theme of redemption, we understand a little bit about that. We get that because um, part of what it means to be an American is to love a good bargain. To love a good bargain. We are the ones, after all, who have a television show called Let's Make a Deal. And let's see what kind of stuff we can get to. And if the game show is not enough, I know that there are people in this room for whom bargain shopping is a hobby. They're up early on Saturday morning cruising yard sales, you know, searching eBay. And among us, we know. We have at least a couple people who are referred to as coupon queens. They know how to cut a coupon and get their money's worth out of it. We have some folks that are Groupon groupies. Uh, we have some folks that, and, and this is probably the most disturbing of all, we have a really large population of people who do nothing but cruise the aisles at Sam's looking for free samples. <laughs> we love our bargains. And if I can have a moment of guilty confession, I use, I use Discover Card. I love that cashback bonus. And what's even better about the cashback bonus, and Reed Hopkins is going to start laughing because he does the same thing, is if you use, if you, so I'm throwing you under the bus with me, if you use your rewards that you get for using your credit card with certain vendors, they double, triple, or quadruple the cashback that you've got. I don't think I've bought a birthday present for anyone in my family for the last 10 years because I'm redeeming uh, Discover Card cashback stuff because it's such a bargain. I've got to do it. And so we like it. Yeah, I'm cheap. Thank you. I heard that. <laughs> Was that Larry? Man. <laughs> so as we talk about this theme this morning, here's, here's some great news for you. And, and it's great news for me. And it's, it's almost inconceivable that I get to talk about it. Because if you, if you like a bargain, if you want a deal, there's one to be had this morning. My fear sometimes is that as Christians, we, you know, we have our own language. If you know anyone that's been in the military, they use acronyms for everything, and good luck trying to guess what those stand for. Um, what in the world? We have our own language called Christianese, and um, if, you be, if you've been around a church for more than two years, you start to learn it. It's like code language for Christians. We've got our own kind of gang signs about how we talk about stuff. And the problem is, while we're all together in the room with people that think the same way we do and have the same values we do, we're speaking the same language. 
But the minute you get outside these doors and you talk about being washed in the blood of the Lamb, you better watch out because uh, somebody's going to call the the police on you. Um, That just sounds strange. Even more than that, sometimes I think we talk about things without really understanding what we're talking about. We throw around a word that we've heard since second grade Sunday school, and we don't really we understand the full significance and importance of what we're talking about. And so especially when we talk about things that are related to the death of Christ, I want to make sure that as Christians we don't mock what Jesus has done with cheap talk, that we understand fully what he has done for us. And so as we start this new series on why did Jesus have to die, our first topic is redemption. We talk about it, we pray about it, and this morning we've even sung about it. But do we really know what it means for Jesus to redeem us? So I'd like for us to consider this topic a little more deeply this morning, and I have three really simple points. And the first is that when we talk about this idea of redemption, the idea of redemption shows us just how tragic our plight is. The idea of redemption shows us our tragic plight Now, when we talk about redemption, I've already kind of um, keyed up on some of my illustrations that redemption is a commercial term. It's a transactional term. You redeem a coupon. You give the coupon, you give the loyalty card, and you you get money off. You get a discount. You get some benefit. There is a commercial transaction. And so redemption is not an unfamiliar term, but there are some important nuances between how we speak about this today and how the New Testament spoke about redemption. See, today, it is all about uh, commercial transactions, groupons, coupons, bargains, and deals, and free samples. It's about money. But in the New Testament, it was not purely commercial. It, was also, it didn't just have to do with commercial institutions like banks and, and lending agencies. It, it, it took on a social institutional feel that's very different. Because when we talk about redemption in the New Testament, it was indeed commercial, but it was commercial in the sense of buying someone, a person, out of the slave market. So when redemption was spoken about in the New Testament, you were still interested in getting a deal. Two for one special at the slave market? I'm buying. But it was not simply commercial. It dealt with a social institution. And friends, that's the word that the Bible uses to describe what Jesus had to do for us, was to buy us out of the slave market, the slave market of sin. And we see, I think, three things that are very helpful for us to understand just how terrible our situation was. And the first is this. The Bible is very clear in affirming that we are under the power of an evil influence. We're under the power of an evil influence. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says this. The God of this world, and that's a lower G, God. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Did you catch that? That a literal devil, Satan, Beelzebub, however you want to refer to him, is actively in the process of making it impossible for people to see the glory of Christ, for people to be blinded to the truth of the gospel. And so the Bible says, listen, he's not a capital G God. His his power is not extreme and far-ranging. It is limited, but he will use his power for evil and to blind people at every opportunity. 
Now, before you start jumping to the conclusion, well, if my plight is so terrible, it's, it's not my fault that I'm an unbeliever. We can't blame him for our tragic plight. We can't blame him because he's not sovereign. He's simply an inmate that's convinced us to get into the cell with him. He, he doesn't have control over us in the same way that God can. He uses his influence. And just because we've gotten behind the, the bars of the prison with him doesn't mean that he's the one that put us there. I don't know if you've ever made a major purchase. A car, a house, a boat, jet skis, whatever. And there's this thing called buyer's remorse. Have you ever experienced it? Where the minute you buy it, and you, you're so excited while you're writing up the paperwork, I can't believe I got this car, I'm so great. And then when it's all done and he hands you the keys and you drive off, you realize, all right, like $10,000 worth of my car is now gone because I've driven it off the lot. You know, it started to depreciate already and I've only had it for five minutes. There's this sense of buyer's remorse that happens. You know, you just go, man, all right, did I, did I haggle enough? Did I get the best interest rate that I could? Should, should I have... Should I have really pushed for another five minutes to see if I could get a deal? Well, listen, blaming, blaming Satan for our plight is like blaming a car salesman for selling us a car that we wanted. You get that? You wanted it. And now that you don't want it, doesn't mean that you didn't want it. And so it's important for us to start on this note that we're in a tragic plight, we're under the, the, the influence of an evil one. But guys, there's a second point, and it's even more dramatic. While we're under the power of an evil influence, we have sold ourselves willingly into this slavery. The Bible is crystal clear. We're not just involved, we're not just a victim of a social institution like slavery to sin, but it's moral. The Bible says in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. There's no one righteous. The problem is that it's worse than it's 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 worse than this. It's not just that we are um, lacking righteousness and are neutral, okay? Because the Bible goes on to say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's not just that we lack righteousness and we're now at some neutral position. R- Romans six twenty three says, "For all have sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God." We're negative. That's what the Bible says. It says we've chosen to sin. We're not neutral, but negative. And I think the point here for us to consider is when you sin, who makes you do it? When you, when you disobey God, when you know you're doing something that God doesn't want you to do, who makes you do it? No one. You choose it freely. Now, you'll freely regret it, but you will freely choose it. We've put ourselves into a situation where we have dug such a deep hole of our own choosing, that we can't even get ourselves out of it. Because we can't stop sinning. We can't even bring ourselves back from negative to neutral. Because sin, it's kind of like teaching a kid to say no. What, what parent has like taught their kid to disobey? But every parent knows, as soon as they're able to talk, and before, they're able to sin. They're able to disobey. They're able to say no! They're able to throw the food across the table. They're able to turn over their bowl. And the result of all of this is the conclusion that we justly deserve our punishment. 
You see, if God is who he claims to be, holy and righteous and just, and laws have been broken, then he has to punish. And the sad truth is he has to punish us. We are the ones who have chosen this. And so I ask the question, how does the Bible talk about this? You'll see several verses here on the screen. Um, important verses, Ephesians 1.17, when it talks about our tragic plight, it says that we've committed trespasses. And that's a property term. If you own real estate and somebody is um, hunting on your property without your permission, they're trespassing. They have crossed a boundary that they have no right to cross. And in the same way, God has established moral laws that we trespass against. This is in, this is out, and we've stepped over the line and we have committed a trespass. Titus 2.14, when it talks about sins, you'll see here in just a second, it says that we, uh, God gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. See, here's what happens. God has indeed established uh, rules, laws, morals for us to follow, and we don't quite agree with God. We don't like where the boundaries are set. We don't like what the laws are. We don't like the, the speed limits that he's set for us. And so what do we do? We kind of figure um, we're a committee of one, and we have the right to change the laws of the universe when it comes to morality. And so we rewrite the law books the way that we want them to. Now, the problem is from our perspective, we think we're doing fine. But from God's perspective, we are now lawless because we're not obeying, obeying his timeless truths. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, a great passage. And it says that basically Jesus gave himself to redeem us from our futile way of life. And we may not think of our way of life as futility, but from God's perspective, how much of our time is wasted on things that are not that important. And then finally, in Colossians 2.14. Colossians 2.14 says that God, through Christ, has canceled the certificate of debt which was hostile to us, and that he removed it completely by nailing it to the cross. So we are trespassers who are lawless, and in our lawlessness leads to futility of life, and now we have a list of debts that is significant. That's what the Bible says about our plight. So we're in captivity. We have sold ourselves into a slavery from which only the payment of a ransom can set us free. This is indeed part of the gospel. But to this point, this is not good news. And I think sometimes as Christians, we need to hear this next phrase. Before we see redemption as something done for us, we have to understand that redemption is something necessary because of something done by us. If we hadn't sinned, redemption wouldn't be necessary. And so before redemption is something done for us, It is something that is required because of something done by us. Our trespasses, our lawlessness, our iniquities, our sins. Point number two, the imagery of redemption highlights the price that has been paid for our freedom. The Bible is very clear that the price for our rebellion is death because of God's wrath against sin. If God is perfectly holy, He cannot admit any shortcoming into his kingdom. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Now that's, again, not good news, but Jesus has an answer for Romans 6.23. And it's found in Mark 10.42. 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 Mark
45. It says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus tells us, He will be our substitute. He will be our sacrificial offering. He will be the ransom for our sin. And so there's a transaction that takes place where he says, give me all your debts. Give me all your sin. I will give you my righteousness. And this is not some kind of cold, you know, shake hands kind of deal. It's not informal. It's not without any passion. Because what is the price that Jesus does for this transaction? It's his life. There is self-sacrifice involved. This is not, you know, uh, if you'll sign in triplicate on page 52, we'll be able to secure this transaction and everything will be good. No. He says, I will do this for those who have faith in me. I will take all of your badness and I will give you all of my goodness and you will stand before God free and clear. That's the gospel. And see, (laughs) it's kind of like you don't really know how... You need the light and the dark in position to understand the contrast. God's good news isn't really good news unless the bad news is really bad news. That's a little bit of a tongue twister at nine something in the morning, okay? So the good news is made starkly, more contrastingly beautiful when it's held up against the blackness of our sin and our debt. I hope that you get that. And so he says, I'm willing to make the sacrifice. Now, I I, I have to teach you a word. It's a word that you have, I hope, heard before. Um, It's not a word that's in the Bible a lot, but maybe four times. It's the word propitiation. Propitiation. When we talk about redemption, the word propitiation means wrath-bearing sacrifice. So when you think about the Old Testament, the Old Testament had a holy day called the... um, the most holy day, Day of Atonement. And they had two sacrifices that happened, one that lived and one that died. They would place their hand on a uh, goat, and then that goat would be sacrificed, and his blood would be sprinkled over the Ark of the Covenant. And then they had another goat by which they would uh, identify, place their hand on the goat, identify their sins with him, and then he would be cast out, taken out of the camp. He was the scapegoat. He would go and bear their sins into the wilderness. And if they ever counted again, he would die. And Jesus says he will be be the scapegoat for us. He will take our sins. And he himself is the wrath-bearing sacrifice. This is a picture of the temple. And the focus of propitiation is that God satisfies his wrath at the cross. You guys remember the story. When we talk about the Easter story, Jesus' resurrection, his crucifixion. What happens when Jesus dies? At noon, the sky becomes dark. The the, the curtain in the temple gets torn in two. It's a picture of uh, God's wrath completely being uh, satisfied. The act of propitiating is at the same time the price of redemption. So by bearing God's wrath, Christ redeems us. And if propitiation pictures God's wrath being satisfied, thus allowing God to be just, the focus of redemption is not on God at all as much as it is on us, man, being rescued from our slavery to sin. And you need both pictures. Because how is man rescued, redeemed from his sin? Because Jesus was willing to be the wrath-bearing sacrifice. 
to pay the price that we owed, to bear the wrath that we incurred. We're pulled up from that pit and we're set back on solid ground. And when we talk about the price, let's look at those same Bible passages that we saw just a few, few minutes ago. Ephesians 1.17, when the Bible talks about the price that's paid, it says, in Him we have redemption through His teachings. Sermon on the Mount. Man, that's a great sermon. No. We have redemption through His blood. Titus 2.4 says that He gave Himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify us. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. I love this. It's a beautiful passage. It says, Know this, that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Colossians 2.14 says that that debt that we owed, that big long list of debts, well, Jesus canceled it. He tore it up. And you know how he tore it up? He nailed it to the cross. So when we talk about his blood, the price that's paid for our redemption, blood is a picture of life released, not punishment endured. Blood is a picture of life released, not punishment endured. That's important. Because if the blood was important as punishment endured, then our redemption would have been accomplished in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat great drops of blood. The redemption may have not required Jesus to get all the way to the cross because he got beat up pretty good on, third, on, on Friday morning when they lashed him with a whip and when they put a crown of thorns on his head. He certainly bled. The point is that it's not just that Jesus had a bloody lip that saved us. It's that he allowed his blood to be poured out for his life to be given up to be a substitute sacrifice. He paid the death penalty that we all owed. And so we're not just talking about, you know, the cross being a bloody circumstance. When we talk about his blood, we're talking about the fact that he died. And that he died for us. And that was the price that needed to be paid. That Jesus, the sinless son of God, had to die to redeem us. Third and finally, we see that the promise of redemption is both a new proprietor and a new purpose. The promise of redemption is a new proprietor and a new purpose. Now listen, we've got some great news already. We have a a terrible situation. We have a tragic plight that we're in. But there has been a, a price that has been paid that has been the life of the sinless Son of God to secure our freedom. That is great news. But the gospel is not complete until we get to this third and final point. Our trespasses, they've been forgotten. Our lawless deeds, they've been erased. Our debts, they've been paid. Our futile life, that gets traded for a completely new direction for us to go to. You see, when Jesus saves a man, when Jesus saves a woman, he doesn't just wash them up to go jump back in the same mud pit that he just rescued you from. It says that he has bought you. 
So uh, this is going to sound terribly offensive, but it's biblical. You no longer belong to yourself if Jesus has bought you. You owe him your life. He, he needs to be your new proprietor, your new owner. But he gives you a new purpose. It's not just that Jesus redeems you from something. He redeems you to something. Listen to God's word. Titus 2.14. We've looked at it several times, but it says, He gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. And then listen to this point. To purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's the purpose of redemption. It's to make a new people called by his name who love to obey him. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, said that God sent forth his son at the perfect time so that he might redeem those who were under the law, listen to this, that we might receive the adoption as sons or daughters. It says part of the reason he's redeemed us is not just to forgive us, but to make us part of his family. And I love this. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul is giving some warnings to the Ephesian church elders and telling them, guys, listen, after I am gone, there will be people who will come in and they will come among the flock like wolves. Now, they'll look like sheep, but they will be wolves, and they will seek to do damage to the flock of God. And this is what Paul says to them. He says, friends, be on guard to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There's a lot of reasons I like that verse. But it puts the seriousness of how we are to live in very stark contrast. He says, number one, Jesus, just, Jesus did not just die for individual Christians. Yes, that's true. He, he, he died to save me. He died to save you. But one of his purposes was he died to save us. He died to make the church. It's not Lone Ranger Christianity that we all do our own, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and, you know, just kind of live a lonely life. He built us for community, to have a special bond that we share with fellow believers in Christ because you know what? The person sitting next to you on the pew has been purchased with God's blood too. It's a precious truth. So we see our plight, we see the price, and we see the purpose behind God's redemption. So when we talk about the great deal that I mentioned earlier, here it is. All of these things are offered to you for free. And the best part is there's no fine print that throws in like a set of steak knives. You know, there's no, there's no fine print, there's no catch, there's no manipulation. There is the statement that all who want Jesus can have him. All who want their sins forgiven can have them completely wiped out. All who want a new proprietor, a new purpose, a new direction in life, he will do a total makeover of your life. And he won't charge you a premium because he's already paid it. Is that not incredible? By his grace, he says, I will redeem you. 
I will give my grace to you. I will make you different. I will make you a part of my family. I will engraft you into the church. Here's the question that sticks out to me. If the church was worth his blood, is she not worth our labor? Is it not? Does it not make sense for us to share the gospel more with people who need to hear it, regardless of what they think about us? I hear so many Christians who go, well, I'm just afraid of losing my friendship if I, if I say this. Well, what kind of friendship is it if you never tell them the truth about their destiny? And is your faith in your friendship or is your faith in the gospel? When it comes to serving the church, if the, church, if the cost for the church to be born was the blood of our Savior, can't you find a job? Can't you shake a hand? Can't you, can't you help with something? Can't you serve our community in our name? Isn't there something that you can do? Because if the church was worth His blood, how do you demonstrate that? You see, the privilege of serving the church should be established by the preciousness of the price paid to purchase her. The price that Christ paid was no less than what he paid to save you or me. Regularly, we have the opportunity to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper. And in one sense, to kind of play along with the analogy, we don't have a loaf of bread here and a chalice or a cup. But those would be the coupon for you to buy into the deal of redemption. Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He wasn't a cannibal. He was speaking metaphorically. That you have to, you have to almost like the, the, the act of eating, ingesting, you have to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. That he died for our sins and that he rose again. And so the cup and the bread, Christ's body and his blood, are the tokens that he gives to us to remember that there is no way that we can buy the redemption that he freely offers to us in Jesus Christ. And so today, at the danger of speaking Christianese, if you don't know that you're saved, if you don't know that you have been redeemed, Friend, the bargain is on. Don't get your wallet or your checkbook out because it won't do you any good. It's freely offered to you in Christ. Will you come? You're not bad enough for Jesus' blood to wash you completely clean. For those of you who sit there and go, yeah, I'm saved. But that third point, the new proprietor and new purpose, I'm not living that way. Friend, every chance we have to gather together is a chance for you to make a new start. And so if you need to demonstrate your trust in the gospel by your action for the gospel, will you come? Will you say, sign me up? Tell me what to do. Point me in the right direction. Give me something that I can do for Jesus that will be something that I can add because I'm just not doing it right now. Friends, when we talk about redemption, it is a precious Christian word 
but it is a word filled full of meaning that we have a Savior that has purchased us back. We should live for him. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this truth of your redeeming graces. God, it's not just like you call us to you and then leave us to figure everything out on our own. You give us brothers and sisters in Christ. You give us a church to love and to shape and to push us in the right direction. God, you are wonderful. And I pray today that today might be a new day. Whether that is someone coming to faith in Christ for the first time or just kind of taking the next step down the pathway and understanding what it means to be a Christian. Or whether it's a day for someone to repent and renew. We pray that you'll do your work among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.